please continue to stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. A little background, Peter has just finished his first sermon at Pentecost, and here now we have the response. Verse 37, this is the word of God. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray before we hear God's word. Lord God, we ask again the never-needy people. Remove all distractions from our minds and hearts this morning, we ask. Lord, give us ears to hear, we pray. Enable me with clarity by the power of your Spirit to declare this, your glorious gospel truth. Above all, for the glory of your name, for the good and the sanctifying reality of your people and the salvation of souls who walk in rebellion. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The demanding call of response to the gospel rightly proclaimed. That's the title of the message this morning. Last time our attention was riveted uh, to the first gospel sermon preached by an apostle after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle Peter, he preached a, a powerful, fearless, Christ-centered, scripture-saturated sermon. That is biblical exposition. The only kind of preaching acceptable to God, the only kind of preaching blessed of God, proven in that it serves as a pattern for all subsequent apostolic preaching throughout the rest of Acts. And is the pattern to be followed to this very day. That is, preaching that is theological, expositional, and argumentative in that it presents a case and demands a response. That kind of preaching. One amen over there. Right field. Now, Peter's sermon is recorded for us in skeleton form. Um, this is not, or that was not, his entire sermon. We don't know if he preached for an hour 
likely, because that's how long you should preach. <laughs> or, <laughs> or longer, for that matter. Uh, but this wasn't all of it. We know uh, by way of verse 40, if you look there, it says that, that with many other words, many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them. Certainly, with regard to what he said back in verse 36, take a look at it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Imagine. Now, throughout the book of Acts, many voices will name the name of Jesus the Christ. And each time, it elicits a different reaction, depending upon who's talking, and most certainly, depending upon who's listening. But unlike any other name, my friends, the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, requires you to respond. Now, you're all here this morning having responded to Christ. You're responding to him. You have responded. You will continue to respond to this Jesus who is the Christ. And if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who he has been declared to be by God the Father, then his name prohibits you from being neutral. Remaining neutral. This text calls for a response. It demands a response. How have you responded to Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God, the only way to the Father? There is no other way except through me, said Jesus. How have you responded? Do you reject him this morning as being the only way to the Father? Are you trying to reshape Jesus, saying in your mind, well, you know, to me, Jesus is like, and then fill in the blank. Uh, there is no to me Jesus is like or perhaps you say you know I'm undecided I'm on the fence to be undecided let me remind you to be undecided is to remain decidedly against him Jesus himself said he who is not with me is against me that's the introduction. So this morning, let's go back and remember the immediate context. Now, Peter, the preacher, preaches to a majority of Jews. His audience is mostly Jewish. We know that there were some Gentile God-fearers there. But here, uh, the majority are made up of, of Jews, um, and they know very well that any man hanged upon a tree, a cross, is cursed of God. And based upon the event of the crucifixion, the name of Jesus was at this point associated with shame, defeat, and death. And yet he claimed to be Messiah, so he must be a failed Messiah. Messiahs don't die in their mind, but they didn't know the scriptures. Remember, the Jews, their greatest hope at this time was that God would send his Messiah. 
And through the Messiah would come deliverance. Through the Messiah would come liberation. Through the Messiah would come a crushing of God's enemies, a crushing in their mind of imperial Rome who's holding us down. Who would establish a better life and the golden age. This was their hope. That was their anticipation. Jesus was crucified. Anyone hanged upon a tree is cursed of God. He cannot be Messiah. So imagine being told in a sermon by an apostle that God did send his Messiah, and not only did you miss him, okay, you, 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 you mistakenly identified him as something other than who he truly is, and by the way, you contributed to his murder. <laughs> that is precisely what Peter's doing in his sermon at Pentecost. Rome carried out the crucifixion, no doubt. And most certainly, Jesus was delivered up in the text, in the sermon, by the predetermined foreknowledge of God. Before the foundation of the earth, Christ was crucified, that he would bear God's wrath on the cross to save sinners like me. And verse 23, without negating human responsibility, you people nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless man. You put him to death. Put yourself in the, camp, in the temple courts that day, standing in their place and hearing that. Peter goes on to prove, which we looked at last time, that all of the events surrounding the death of Jesus, his resurrection, they are all confirmations that he is in fact Messiah as he preached in verses 16 to 35. He cites the prophet Joel. He says that the phenomenon of tongues that y'all are hearing, that's a sign that the last days have been inaugurated. Are we living in the last days? Were they living in the last days? If Jesus comes back in two days, is this the last days? These? If he comes back in 10,000 years, will that be the last days? Yes, the last days commenced when he ascended and received authority and a kingdom from God the Father. He went on to cite Psalm 16 in his sermon declaring that this Jesus who was laid in a tomb could not see corruption, so he was raised, unlike David, whose tomb is just down the road. He wouldn't be in the grave long enough for his body to, to begin decomposition. He went on to cite Psalm 110, applying it to the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, we read in the text, poured out this which you both see and hear. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you all crucified. Can you, um, can you, uh, I'm trying to imagine this for myself all week. And I not only only have 45 minutes to do that for you, but imagine. You, that, that finger pointing at you crucified him. 
the person you've been waiting for and hoping for, God's long-promised Messiah you killed. And then notice, through this preaching, they really believe that they have put God's Messiah to death. They believe it. They hear it. Yes, the one we were hoping for and the one God promised, we, we murdered him? Yes. Yeah. So in their mind, they're thinking the, the, the crucifixion of the one who shares the throne of God must be, we murdered him? That must be the ultimate sin against God. We know what Daniel prophesied, that the Son of Man would ascend to the right hand of the Ancient of Days, who's the Father, and would receive a kingdom. If that's him, we murdered him. That must be the ultimate sin. We're doomed. And be sure to know, beloved, although you and I were not there to drive the nails through his hands. It was your sin, it was my sin that made his death necessary, therefore guilty as charged. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. The, one, the ones who pierced the son are pierced to the heart. That, that word uh, means to a, a sharp stab, a stab to the soul, to where you wince. You ever had like major cramps, intestinal cramps, and you just wince and you bend over? It's like that, spiritually speaking. A stab to the soul, pierced to the heart, deeply convicted. We were wrong. We were so wrong. That is what true preaching accompanied by God the Holy Spirit does. To those dead, it's like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Notice they don't argue, they don't dispute the charge. But out of a deep sense of conviction, Peter, notice, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles who were there, brethren, what shall we do? This is, we're desperate. What do we do? We've heard the charge. What do we do? The word of God has come in piercing power like a sword. It has rendered them paralyzed. They don't know what to do. So appealing to their Jewish heritage, they cry out, brethren. My Jewish brothers, what are we supposed to do? Question. Can anyone be truly saved who hasn't felt this piercing? It's highly unlikely a person could be truly saved who hasn't felt the sting of conviction cut to the heart over the consequence of sin and above all, the one against whom we have sinned. Highly unlikely. Because that's the starting point of grace. What is grace? 
unmerited favor. If God brings you to this point, that's grace. Excuses go out the window, man. Self-justification in the trash can. Self-applause, silenced. You become like a dead man, dead woman. If deep conviction doesn't cut, sin has not been rightly understood, let alone God has been misunderstood. He's holy. Why do you think he had to shield Israel from his full-blown glory? Because you'll die. He's so holy, his holiness, he's a consuming fire. You'll be consumed by his holiness. So under the old covenant, there was the tabernacle and all of the prescribed manners of worship to protect the people from God, whose his presence he was making available. <laughs> Transgress the lines of my prescribed order of worship and you die because I'm holy. That's God. So if there's no deep sense of conviction, there's no cutting to the heart at understanding who God is, so it, there'll, there'll be another reason for you to follow Jesus. I'll just slap him on my, li on my life to make me more happy. You don't understand Jesus. You don't understand your need for Jesus. This kind of conviction drops you down to your knees where you begin to see your desperate need for the Savior, and there's only one, this Jesus. What shall we do? That is the eternally significant question of all questions. Verse 38. Answer, repent. How do you like that word in our 21st century? Age of political correctness. You like that word? Repent. You can't tell people they're sinners. Oh, yes, you can. Says who? Okay, notice here in the preaching. Notice this. I want you to notice. Notice in Peter's preaching, there is no invitation here to make Jesus Lord of your life. You see that? You know, a message of touchy-feely stories and then, you know, would you, would, you know, would you like to make Jesus Lord of your life? It drives me crazy when I hear preachers do that. Would you like to make Jesus Lord, accept him into your heart, and receive him as Lord of your life? That's backwards theology, which makes Christianity just another subjective religion from which to choose from, rather than. The objective truth that there's one way to God. The one who created heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in the sea, the Lord of the universe. Whether you want him or not, you will eventually bow before him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Some into judgment, some into glory. So if you notice, the heart of the gospel being preached here, look at verse 34. Back to the Old Testament, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, this is David speaking, The Lord said to my Lord, the one who's yet to come, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Footstool for the feet of Jesus. 
that is his enemy. So notice, God doesn't invite people to come to Christ. He never invites people to come to Christ. He demands you come to Christ. It's a demand. He requires it because he's Lord. He is the Christ. He's the only way you could be saved. Therefore, you're demanded, repent. Universal command. What do you hear in the Old Testament from the prophets? Israel what? Repent. Joel, I mean, uh, uh, um, Jonah was told to go to a pagan land, non-Israelites. They hated Israel. What was the command? Repent. Jesus came out preaching what? Repent. John the Baptist came out preaching what? Repent. The apostles will go on preaching. Repent. Preachers today who are true preachers preach, repent. Change your mind. Change your thinking. If you notice in chapter 3, look at verse 17. I mean, this, this, this is the hallmark of apostolic preaching. Chapter 3, verse 17, we read, And now, brethren, he's speaking to Jews, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now, in, later on in, in Acts 17, when, when Paul enters the scene, he's preaching to Gentiles. The message is the same. He begins, therefore, verse 30, chapter 17, having overlooked the times of ignorance, Gentiles, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. It's the fundamental message to all mankind right there. Repent. Why? Acts 17, verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge, notice, the world in righteousness through a man. Who's the man? Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof of all men by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> As I've said before, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we're the most foolish morons in the world to be here this morning. Period. Metanoia, repent. To change one mind. It's to change your mind. It's to do an about face, as Ray spoke about this morning in his Sunday school class. It's an internal intellectual, intellectual exchange of old beliefs for new beliefs. Well, I used to say Jesus is like this. You know, to me, Jesus, well, I've learned from the scripture that that's not all he is. Well, Jesus is love, but that's not all he is. Jesus doesn't judge. No, scripture says Jesus is the judge. Jesus himself said the father judges no one. He's given all judgment over to me. I'm the judge. So denial of him must be repented of. A misunderstanding of Christ must be repented of. There must be a turning from sin and unbelief, but that's not all. It's an about face, turning away from my unbelief, turning away from my sin, and turning to, to God in Christ. Repent. And by the way, repentance is not synonymous with remorse. Did we not learn something from Esau's example this morning? 
people are sorry all the time. The Bible's filled with people that are sorry, but it's a worldly sorrow, the sorrow over consequence. And the Bible says that that kind of sorrow leads to what? Death. But godly sorrow leads to everlasting life. I've sinned against God. You know, repentance unto life is an act of God's saving grace. Listen to this. Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a mark of God's mercy. Repentance is a mark of God's mercy whereby a sinner, and I'm quoting, out of a true sense of his sin, okay, not the idea, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Not that. Whereby a true sense of his sin, along with the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, turns from his sin and turns unto God. So you turn from and you turn to Almighty God. And what happens when that person repents with grief and hatred over his sin? Peter says, notice, repent and be baptized. Now, you would think he would say, believe and be baptized. I mean, after all, John, doesn't the Bible say? I thought the Bible, the condition of the gospel was believe. But here he says, Repent. Is it believe or is it repent? Answer? Answer? Yes. Believe is to repent and to repent is to believe. Truly believe is to repent. To repent is to believe. So Peter's providing us a shorthand. Repentance isn't the exclusion of faith. Repentance includes faith. And one who has true faith will indeed repent. Well, which comes first, faith or repentance? Does repentance precede faith or does faith initiate repentance or is it the other way around? What is it? Well, I'll let John Murray help us out with that. Quote, the faith they had, context Acts 2, to turn to God was a repenting faith. You cannot repent apart from faith. It is impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. They go, they're all meshed together. They go hand in hand. Why is that, beloved? Repentance and faith are the byproduct of grace. And what's the initiating work of God that shows his grace? It's the supernatural work of, thank you, regeneration. Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. To be born again is the supernatural work of God. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how does this happen? How can a man be born again? Jesus gave the answer. Well, as the wind blows to and fro, you know not where it comes from nor where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's a mystery. It's a miracle. A man or woman was dead spiritually and they're made alive through the proclamation of the gospel. See, the gospel is so offensive. It declares that you must be something and do something that you cannot do in and of yourself. You must be born again. You can't make yourself be born again. That's why people walk out when the gospel's preached sometimes. They hate it. It's all grace. All grace, baby. No work. 
You can't make yourself be born again. So question, what part did you play in your regeneration? Let me help. You had no part. Repentance is a gift of God, and it comes through the, the, the dynamic, supernatural work of regeneration. Listen to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not getting what you deserve. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Th this is grace that is truly amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You remember when your parents conceived you? You remember what you said in the womb? I want to be born on this day, and I want to have this color hair and this color eyes, and I want my features to, you remember that? then you are insane. Of course not. You had no say in that. You had no say in the regeneration that God provides in his time for his glory. So notice here, here, here are a people who murdered God's son. They murdered the second person of the eternal Godhead who came in a human body. And grace is poured out upon them as Jesus sends the third person of the Godhead in spite of them. to the repentant believer God gives and he gives and he gives and he's, he's given to you now his word the gospel of Jesus Christ grace upon grace upon grace so notice to the repentant believer to whom God gives and gives and gives, Peter goes on now, and he, he, he says, God requires that you now identify with him. Notice, verse 38, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, don't, don't, don't be mistaken here. It's not that they hadn't yet received the Holy Spirit, Okay? With a superficial reading of the text, one might conclude, once you're baptized, then you receive the Spirit. Wrong. In other places in Acts, in chapter 10, for instance, we read that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and were then commanded to be baptized. That is, friends, there are different ways of explaining the same thing. That's all this is. That's all we see here. We're not meant to read into this, creating some strange doctrine where you must believe, be baptized, and then you receive um, uh, the second blessing. That's nonsense. That's man-made. Here, notice, the gift of the Spirit is to be distinguished from gifts, plural, of the Spirit. Okay, notice. The gift of the Spirit is the Spirit himself. Gifts of the Spirit come from the Spirit himself. The gift of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Friends, 
Never make the mistake of thinking that the Holy Spirit commenced his work at Pentecost. Let me tell you this. The Holy Spirit was alive and active in the Old Testament just as he was and is in the New. There's no way anyone who could have been saved from that list of people we read in Hebrews 11 out of the Old Testament unless the Holy Spirit did his divine work within them. It's not possible. At Pentecost, what we see is a special endowment of God the Holy Spirit providing God's people with a greater comprehension of divine grace fulfilled in Jesus Christ and now the participation of his presence to serve for his purpose for that makes us a kingdom of kingdom of priests to carry out the mission of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ so this the inauguration of the new covenant in Acts chapter 2, is a, is a Grinch-like transformation. Remember the Grinch who stole Christmas? Remember his teeny-weeny little heart? And he stole all of the presents from Whoville? And he's up on the top of the mountain, and he's losing the sleigh and his little dog, and all of a sudden his heart starts to grow and grow and grow, and it busts the little magnifying glass. Do you remember that? That's this moment, so to speak. The Holy Spirit has affected the heart of God's people. He's transformed their heart, and their heart now grows with the capacity of devotion to God and, as we'll see in coming weeks, devotion to one another for the glory of God. That's what's happening right here. Now notice, because of this, verse 38, each one of you, be baptized. Friends, let me say this. If you're a Christian, this is not an option. Baptism for the remission of sins, better translated because of the remission of sins, because that Greek preposition for can also be translated because of. So because of the forgiveness of sins, you must be baptized. Sometimes we read in Scripture, we're saved because of our sins, they're forgiven. We, we read because our sins are forgiven. We read because we believe. And other times we read because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we're saved. Those are all just different ways of describing parts of the doctrine of soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. Are you with me? So if you're, if you're a Christian, okay, and you've repented of your sins, you've repented because you've been regenerated by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, you're a believer who believes in Christ alone for salvation, and that makes you now under the obligation of God to be baptized, each one of you. Are you still with me? Does baptism save anybody? No. Does baptism cause regeneration? No. Is baptism a prerequisite for salvation? No. Absolutely not. But it is a great responsibility for those who have been saved. It's a priority for those he has saved to now be baptized. 
because baptism in water is the external sign that displays an internal reality, which is baptism of the Holy Spirit. And who does that baptism? The Spirit of God. Jesus sends the Spirit to baptize his people, called before the foundation of the earth, in time, in that moment when he calls it's effectual, they're born again, now they're commanded to go be baptized to identify with the finished work of Jesus Christ. doesn't save you. The New Testament, in case you're here and you're a Christian who hasn't been baptized, it never follows the notion of a Christian who remains, who remains decidedly unbaptized. It's just not there. People who were added to the church in the first century, they, they were counted, they were numbered by how many that were what? Baptized. We see here, 3,000 were added that day. They were baptized. Where'd they get baptized at in the temple courts? There were all kinds of pools for cleansing throughout the courts. So no doubt it would have been there. See, being baptized was to come out, so to speak, and, and own one's faith publicly. And for these first century Christians, especially these Jewish Christians, they, what were they receiving? Scorn, ridicule, persecution, as we'll see as we move throughout Acts. In other words, there's no such thing as a private, personal faith. It's just me and Jesus. No, it's not. Yes, you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it's not a private faith. It's a public faith. This is part of the community of saints for which you're part of here. Amen? So here in the first century, they would publicly stand before the brethren, publicly stand and give allegiance to Jesus Christ, identifying by way of baptism, his death, burial, resurrection. Now we've all heard of the word sacrament, amen, or sacramentalism. That doesn't actually come from the Bible, but over the years has taken on all kinds of meaning, especially within the church, um, the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church. But there's two ordinances for us to follow as believers, baptism and the, the Lord's table. So the word sacrament comes from sacramentum. Sacramentum in the first century is when a Roman soldier would, would, would give allegiance, he would swear an oath of allegiance to Rome and to Caesar. And Christians adopted that term, that oath of allegiance, in their baptism made public, a sacramentum. That's what they did. Boldly standing. So that was everything in the first century. This was more of an, you know, are you for real question. So just let me say and encourage you, if you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, you need to all come talk to me or one of the elders, and you need to be baptized. Uh, to get saved? No, but because you're saved by grace, through faith in Christ alone. Notice as we move on, Peter now declares the extent of the gospel, verse 39 
For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter says here, this promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's for you. Now, let's be careful not to read ourselves into that part of the text. Because let's remember something very important. You don't want to read yourself into this. We're reminded that the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. So we have to discern, okay, which parts are for us and which parts are intended to mean something other than for me. And here, he, when he says you, he's immediately speaking to this group of yous who have committed the most atrocious crime ever. You, you crucified the Son of God. Those immediately responsible for the crucifixion of the promised Messiah. And notice he says, you and your children. Now think about this, you and your children. These are the same people when Pontius Pilate recognized the innocence of Jesus the Christ, he said, what evil has he done? I find no guilt in him deserving of death. I'm innocent of this man's blood, to which they cried in response, his blood be on us and our children. In other words, we take full responsibility as well as all those who belong to us, our offspring, will take the responsibility. So here, the same ones who arrogantly accept the blame for the death of Jesus are now, to this preaching, granted the saving benefit of his very death and resurrection. So to believe in him, the one you crucified, you are saved. So go be baptized. has nothing to do with pedo baptism This is language that comes from Genesis 17. You remember? Speaking of Abraham and his offspring, all those who are far off, an Old Testament promise of, of Jews living in faraway lands, and also promise to a multitude of nations. Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace. To the far and to the near, says the Lord. We who are far off, here we are, drawn near by the Spirit of God. Same Holy Spirit, amen? Notice verse 39. And as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Who calls who for salvation? Notice verse 21, those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know who they are? They're the ones that God calls to himself for salvation. He makes that call effect, that call is made effectual. How many times did you hear the gospel call and you said, no, 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 no. And then one day you said, please, 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 please. Right? That day the call was effectual. If God didn't initiate the call, You'd never call in response. Psalm 14, we read. They do not call upon the Lord. No one calls upon the Lord. 
We read in Romans chapter 3, there is none who seeks after God because they're not righteous. No one seeks after God. When Adam sinned, remember that? Do you remember when Adam sinned in the garden? What's the first thing he did? He went seeking God, right? Thank you, you're awake. No, he tried to hide from God. He didn't go seeking God. Who is the seeker? God's the seeker. If God is not the seeker, you're never going to seek for him. He initiates, we respond. Therefore, when you hear the gospel preach, repent, and you call upon the Lord, that means this preaching is a means of his grace to reach your dead heart, to bring you to life, to call upon the Lord who's calling you. That's grace. The effectual call. Jesus said this, Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, look at it. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son, what? Wills to reveal him. Period. Has the Father been revealed to you by way of the Son? through the resident presence of the Holy Spirit? There's one response, friends. It's called thanksgiving. To be thankful. It's not by your works righteousness. It's sovereign grace. Notice now a summary as we wrap up. A, a summary here of this grand gospel event. Verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept, notice this, he kept on exhorting them, be saved from this perverse generation. Or perhaps your translation says this crooked generation. Now, that term is first used, beloved, way back in the book of Deuteronomy to speak of Israel who rebelled against God in the wilderness, who as a result were kept out of the promised land now sometimes people get confused when they read the old testament with the promise of the new covenant in view and they make the mistake of seeing this perverse generation only of unbelieving jews living under the old covenant that's a big bozo no no okay when you interpret evil generation do not make the mistake of interpreting generation in terms of time. We must be biblical in our thinking. When we take in all of Scripture, what we see is that we are to interpret perverse generation in terms not of time, but of a people. Old Testament, New Testament. Who share common characteristics you see it throughout scripture in Matthew 16 and 17 it was used to speak of those who rejected Christ's public ministry they were sign seekers remember show us a sign and Jesus said only a perverse generation seeks after signs so if you're a sign seeker take heed Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Christians are called to live above reproach in the midst of a 
crooked and perverse generation among whom you are to appear as lights. Generation, not in terms of time, but in terms of a people. We read it to the end of the Bible, Revelation 18. A voice from heaven cries out. This is John's vision he's given. Saying, come out of her, my people. Who are my people? To the church of Jesus Christ. Come out of her, referring to the Babylonian whore. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues for her sins. These unbelieving people, this perverse generation among whom you live, they have, their sins are piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, her crookedness, her perverseness, a perverse generation in terms of a people, not in terms of a time. And they've always existed. And they will continue to exist until the end of time. Every culture, every generation throughout time who have this antichrist characteristic that has a damning effect on one's mind and one's will, the consequence of which is to incur God's judgment, he says, my people come out from among her. Don't be tied to her. He said, no, be rescued, he says. Be rescued from the corrupting and damning influence of this culture, your culture, and all cultures throughout time. Why? Because this culture of people, any people who are shaped by the culture that is in opposition to God, characterized by their rejection of God, are going to suffer on the great and terrible day of God. Peter says, be saved from it. Jesus says in the Revelation to John, through an angel, don't be tied to her, to it. How? How are we saved? Verse 21, back up. And it shall be, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That text originates in the Old Testament. It shows up in the New. Jesus Christ, fulfillment of all, everyone, anyone who calls on the name shall be saved. Originally spoken of by Joel. And that then was something that was to be enjoyed by the entire remnant of Jewish people at that time. Are you with me? I'm almost done. Everyone, whoever, Peter calls on this people, this audience, this continuing remnant of people brought out from among that crooked generation, brought into this new covenant community of people, Come out from among her. Be saved from it because it will always exist until he returns in judgment. Notice with many other words, be saved from this perverse generation. In other words, he's saying, be sure that you belong to this remnant being developed right now here at Pentecost. Verse 41, so then, those who had received his word, 
what were they? Baptized. They received it. They were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Notice the order. They received the message. Baptized. Added to the community. 3,120. Or so. What's in view? A new community. The believing remnant of old Israel that is the basis for, the core of, the heart of, the nucleus of the new Israel of God, the same God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here he is. All co old covenant promise fulfilled in Christ. Here he is. Jesus has gone to the Father. God's sovereign mission continues in fuller form to this very day through us, these new covenant believers in Christ, we are witnesses of this great eternal king. In other words, this is the last chapter. This is the final epic. Next move of the Lord, judgment. New heaven and new earth for you. Judgment for this perverse generation. So the remnant grows from 120 to 3,120 in one day. Notice verse 47. Who added to their number? Just look at it. I'm done. Look at it. Who added to their number? Just say it. The Lord added to the number. Who adds to his church? Not you, not me. He does. He does. Through the preaching of the word. So although Pentecost is a one-time event, its demands remain the same. Have you repented? In other words, do you truly believe? If you have, have you been baptized? If not, get baptized. If you have, you've received the Holy Spirit, so you need to obey. And finally, if you're wrapped up in and among this perverse generation, and you find yourself um, adopting their views and their philosophies, this is a warning, my friends. If you think there's more than one ways to God other than Jesus, if you think that Jesus is just a man and he was not God, you need to repent and come out from among this crooked, perverse generation who perpetuates all this nonsense. Come now and repent. Amen? And I say that because I love you. You can go home and feel bad all day if you want. And as they say, as my mom said, you can get glad in the same britches you got mad in. <laughs> Come to Christ and be saved. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for this wonderful event in history. We thank you for your grace that continues to this very moment in time. Bless your word to your people. Save those who came in unbelieving that by the time they live here, leave here, they'll be, be, be leaving. For the glory of your name, amen.